1: Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to episode 134 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen podcast. I am very happy to announce I am now with the Evergreen podcast team, and we have some very exciting things to bring you in the coming months. You can now find Who Killed on evergreenpodcast.com, or wherever you get your favorite shows. That has not changed. One other bit of show news is that I will be the main talking head on Snapped Behind Bars, the Taylor Marks story, this Saturday, October 16th, on the Oxygen Network. The show will also be found on their website, as well as on demand, after it airs at 8 p.m. Eastern. The case we discuss is terribly tragic and sad, and again, I hope all of my listeners will tune in Filming the show was quite an experience, and uh, I hope, again, you guys will check it out. Last week, we discussed a case that went unsolved for 44 years. This was mostly due to the fact that her identity was unknown for most of that time. And with this week's case, the identity of the victim was known, but the case remained unsolved for more than three decades. I'm talking about the murder of 17-year-old... Beth Bramlett of Axtell, Texas. The Waco Citizen had a weekly feature titled Crime of the Week, and they wrote on August 24, 1982. Saturday, August 8, 1982, Beth Bramlett, a 17-year-old white female, went to a party at Trading House Lake with some of her friends. A fight broke out of the party, and Beth decided to leave. That was the last time any of her friends saw Beth alive. Her body was found two days later on FM 939, lying beside the railroad tracks. Beth had been shot to death with a small caliber weapon. Crime stoppers will pay $1,000 cash for information given within the next seven days, which leads to the arrest and an indictment of the person or persons responsible for the crime. Now, this town had a population of about 500 people in the early 1980s, so... Needless to say, they were pretty shaken. And the story pretty much goes like this. You know, the summer was coming to an end for Beth. She was partying at the Trading House Lake, which was the hot spot in Waco, Texas at the time. Now, Beth was said to be a pretty 17-year-old high school student preparing to begin her senior year. As the crime of the week states, while the party was raging, a brawl broke out. Some reports state that one party-goer was playing with a gun, and something like in a movie, he fired a shot into the air. At this point, Beth decided the party was not someplace she should be. And from all reports, she apparently started walking home when Johnny and Teresa Wood offered her a ride. According to KWTX News, while en route to Bramlett's home in Axtell, The car apparently didn't have enough gas to get there. So if you could come up with a worst-case scenario, this would probably be pretty close. A young woman, off on the side of the road, while two people who picked her up returned to the party. Now, being stranded is an unsettling feeling, and her luck appeared to change when she saw one Talmadge Woods car on the road, and she flagged him down, and that is according to Detective Fuller she would be found days later dead by a fisherman. And apparently, she had been shot in the chest. The 17-year-old had died, according to the autopsy, from a 22 caliber gunshot to the head. Although the autopsy would show she suffered more than one bullet wound, investigator Truman Simon said. Now put a pin in that name because it will come up again soon. In 1982, Waco was a city of just over 100,000 people and was a quieter place to live than the big city of Dallas to the north. There was also a belief that living in Waco was a safer place to raise your children. I mean, it really was in all reality. The crime rate was significantly lower than Dallas and would remain so. But the city was shaken to its core in July when three teenagers were found murdered at Lake Waco. So the city was dealing with this enormous tragedy involving three teenagers, and it flooded the front page for weeks, if not months. And again, I'm talking about the Lake Waco murders. I did a few episodes on the case. and I'm going to read some portions directly from the great publication Texas Monthly, because they set the scene for what became a controversial case with some questionable police techniques, specifically that of one Truman Simons. According to the Texas Monthly, in a deep-dive article by reporter Michael Hall, patrol sergeant Truman Simons was driving down Franklin Avenue in downtown Waco when the call came over the police radio. It was around 6.30 on a summer evening in 1982. Simmons received an urgent call over the radio. A body had been discovered at Spiegelville Park near Lake Waco. Simons was a prototypical Texas lawman with a bushy brown mustache and a 10-gallon hat. TM says the city of Waco was already having an unusually high number of murders for a city of its size. Before the Lake Waco case, there had already been 13 homicides. Texas Monthly says for all of Waco's, quote, small-town feel, Simons himself, the father of a young boy, recognized that these were big city problems. Now, Simons grew up in Rosenthal, in a town just south of Waco. He joined the Waco Police Department in 1965. And Simons stuck to the street, and very much like Jimmy McNulty, if you've seen The Wire. Texas Monthly says it was when he was on the streets, he still felt like he could actually solve crimes. And he was known to use a network of informants he had carefully developed over the years. Now, some fishermen had been looking for a place to fish when they spotted a body near the foot of a tree lying beneath some low-hanging branches. Two fishermen thought they had come across a mannequin, as cliche as that has become. In 1982, it probably was the thing that made the most sense. When they decided to investigate, their curiosity quickly turned to horror. A young man in jeans and an orange shirt lay gagged with his hands behind him. His shirt was stained with blood and his chest was full of stab wounds. The victim, he could see, was just a boy with a wispy mustache. He wore a pair half-tinted aviator glasses, which were slightly cocked on his face. 18-year-old named Kenneth Franks had been reported missing earlier that day. The dead boy was clearly Kenneth, the men agreed. Kenneth had last been seen with two girls from Waxahachie, a blonde 17-year-old named Raylene Rice and a brunette 17-year-old named Jill Montgomery. They, too, were missing. Simons and the other officers then discovered the bodies of Raylene and Jill. The teens had been bound with shoelaces and strips of towel and stabbed a total of 48 times. Many of the wounds were shallow, suggesting they had been tortured, which is just awful. The murders, another official said, were, quote, the most sadistic and cruel he had seen in his career. And the next morning, citizens across Waco awoke to terrifying headlines that read, quote, Man, two teenage girls found stabbed to death at Lake Park. Police say bodies found nude. And that was in the Waco Tribune Herald. So the youth and innocence of the victims, you know, all three of these kids were high school students. It made the crime particularly senseless. So needless to say, fear spread through the town. And that's when residents began locking their doors at night and pushing back, or pushing for park curfews, basically. The case quickly was assigned to Waco Police Detective... Or Lieutenant Marvin Horton, who headed up a special investigative force of seven full time officers. Investigators learned that the girls had driven from Waxahachie, an hour north of Waco, in Raylene's Orange Ford Pinto to pick up Jill's last paycheck from Fort Fisher at the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum, where she had been a tour guide that spring. The girls cashed it at a, at a supermarket and drove to Kenneth's house. And Jill knew Kenneth from the Methodist home in Waco, a boarding school for troubled and academically challenged kids. The two had lived there for a while and even dated, but now they were just friends. Kenneth told his father that they were going to Cone Park, which was directly across the lake from Spiegelville Park. It was a spot where teenagers often congregated to drink, smoke, and hang out. But apparently after that, however, the teenagers' trail vanished. Several people had seen them arrive at the park, and Raylene's car was found there, but no one had seen them leave. Investigators couldn't figure out how they had gotten across the lake to Spiegelville. The grass around the girls was flattened as if they had struggled with whoever killed them. But there was no knife, very little blood on the ground, and no semen anywhere even though the medical examiner determined that the girls had been sexually assaulted. Police would go on to interview between 150 and 200 people. Simons thought he had his guy, and police had him arrested. It was a local grocery store owner, and it was in connection with the stabbing deaths of Kenneth, Raylene, and Jill. And that guy was Munir Muhammad Deeb he was 23 and he was the co-owner of the Rainbow Grocery Store in Waco. And on June 30th, 1985, Deeb was convicted and sentenced to death. Deeb, while in prison, he began studying law and actually would become a licensed paralegal later. In June 1991, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturned his conviction. The court ruled that Beckham's testimony was inadmissible hearsay and should not have been admitted against Deeb at his trial. Deeb went, on, went to go on trial a second time, and guess what? He was acquitted on January 12, 1993. Waco police officer Jan Price gave a sworn statement where she said, I was convinced that Simon's investigation included numerous promises to jail inmates and the outright fabrication of evidence against the unlucky suspects. So Simons is an interesting character, and the fact that he is or was involved with the investigation of the murder of Beth Bramlett becomes slightly concerning. The Waco police, more specifically, Simons, I guess you should say, was obsessed with finding the killer of the Lake Waco teens. Now, according to KWTX, Simons didn't work for the county when Bramlett was murdered, but shortly afterwards, he would sign on with the McLennan County Sheriff's Department and with that began investigating the Bramlett murder. At the crime scene, he said Bramlett's body was laid across the tracks, face down, and didn't appear to have been brutalized. But when investigators turned her over, it appeared someone had chewed or gnawed, maybe even eaten part of her body. When she was found, Bramlett was wearing jeans and a white t-shirt. Both cases went cold pretty quickly, but it was probably Bramlett who got the least amount of attention. Police say all murders matter, but I do believe that there was probably more pressure to find the murderer of the three people from Lake Waco than there was in the Beth Bramlett case. But, again... This was 1982, and there wasn't a lot of technology back then to really hone in on this case. But one day, Jimmy Dean Rowe turned himself into the local police and confessed to killing Bramlett with Carlos Castro as his accomplice, and that is according to a police report. Clearly, his parents were big fans of breakfast sandwiches. Rowe claimed to have extrasensory perception, or ESP, and told police he had clairvoyant abilities. A 23-year-old white male who had walked into the Kerrville police station was wishing to confess to five murders. Now, according to police reports, Jimmy Dean Rowe had spent the last few days in Kerrville. He apparently approached a police dispatcher named Ernest Stewart with his plea to confess. And according to Phil McCarron of the Kerrville Mountain Sun... The dispatcher notified patrolman on duty S.A. Keller, who reported to the station at 9.55 p.m. and proceeded to read Dean his rights, although no arrest had been made. Sergeant Fackelman and the CID Lieutenant Danny Cortez were also notified. This self-professed suspect said, I want to confess to five murders. And later, upon being read his rights again in the presence of Fackleman and Cortez, Dean said, quote, I understand my rights, but I need to get this off my conscience. Five oral statements were made by Dean, one involving a confession to three killings in July involving the three Waco teenagers, two females, and one male. Again, those were victims that had been found with their throats cut. Uh, again, I'm not going to get into too many details, but those victims were nude and gagged and bound. And again, you know, it's just ridiculous. So um, this guy, Jimmy Dean, is in the police station confessing. And, you know, the murder of Beth Bramlett, which occurred on August 10th, or, well, she was discovered on August 10th, also in McLennan County, um, was part of the confession. So you have this guy, uh, Jimmy Dean Rowe, who says, I'm the killer of not only the Lake Waco murders, but I also killed Beth. And, again, police chief Scott Evans explained that conf- the confessing man did not give much more than a newspaper account of the Deanville murder or... While the description of the Spiegelville Park murder in Waco appeared to be more detailed and convincing to Waco police. So Dean was charged with the Spiegelville Park murders, a.k.a. the Lake Waco murders, and was bond was set at $100,000. And guess what? Carlos Castro was also charged and set bond at $100,000. So you would think that this would be the biggest break one could ever imagine. You get a confession to the city's most gruesome murders at Lake Waco, and also the murder of Beth Bramlett. This was like finding gold at the end of the rainbow. Unfortunately, just like there is no gold at the end of the rainbow, there was no truth to this breakfast sandwich fan. Authorities concluded their story was fake. Charges were dismissed after Roe failed to answer questions, basic questions, about the chain of the events leading to the murder. After that, the case went cold for decades, before media attention sparked renewed interest by investigators in the McLennan County Sheriff's Office. In an article by Kristen Hoppe of the Waco Tribune, she wrote, Cold case detective Terry Fuller, an Axtell native, said Bramlett got out of the car and started walking, planning to get a ride home from another person leaving the party. When the driver and Wood's daughter got back to the party, they found Wood there. Wood threatened his daughter, saying she had better beat him home, Fuller said. Wood left the party, and his daughter left about five minutes later. Wood's daughter drove the same route her dad had, past where she had let Bramlett out of the car, hoping to catch up to her dad. Investigators said Wood's daughter sped down the roadway, but never saw her father or Bramlett. Fuller said Wood who had an undisclosed problem with Bramlett, picked up the soon-to-be Axtell High School senior and drove her to the intersection of Farm-to-Market Road 939 and Happy Swainer Lane, where he killed her. Quote, What happened was Bramlett waved him down and tried to get a ride. He knew Beth was at the party. He made statements that he knew his daughter was at the party and that she better not be with Beth. What his beef was with Beth, we can only imagine, according to Fuller. Now, witnesses told the cold case investigators they had seen Wood return home at about 4.30 in the morning, covered in blood. Bramlett's body was found in a ditch by the railroad two days later. Now, investigators say in the 1960s and 70s, Wood was suspected in being involved in his sister's disappearance and his uncle's death in a mysterious house fire. He was never arrested or charged in connection with either case. Wood, according to Sheriff McNamara, also had a history of domestic abuse and on at least one occasion, one occasion beat and tied up his wife before showing photos of her bruises to his neighbor. Four months after Bramlett's murder, Wood broke into a widow's home a week before Christmas shooting the woman and her son. The pair survived, and Wood, who claimed self-defense, was sentenced to 10 years probation? That just seems awfully wrong. The next year, he attempted to kidnap an elderly woman at gunpoint at Richland Mall, and this is according to McNamara, and at least this time, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Released in 1994, Wood continued to have brushes with the law, and eventually died in 2014 of natural causes. With Wood dead, investigators say people began to come forward once the Bramlett case was reopened. Authorities interviewed more than 60 people who reported seeing Wood's clothing covered in blood early on the morning of Bramlett's death. And come on, that leads me to ask the question, really, he was that scary? 60 people wouldn't come forward? Until he was dead? I mean, that's crazy. The sheriff says he met with Bramlett's family to tell them about the solved case. He says Bramlett's mother told him she was thankful the team never gave up. The cold case detective didn't have any physical evidence to work with. No weapon, no vehicle, no place where telltale DNA might hide. And according to KWTX, the team's theory is that Bramlett, who had just returned home from a trip to San Antonio and was about to begin her senior year at Axtel High School, gathered with several schoolmates at, again, the Trading House Creek Reservoir, which was near Hellsburg, for a back-to-school party. Now, it was sometime after midnight on that Sunday, August 8th, when Bramlett started walking home down Hall Road. But a short time later, some friends stopped to give her a ride. At the intersection of Hall Road and Wilbanks Road, the driver told Bramlett he didn't have enough gas to get her to Axtell, so she asked to be let out to try to catch another ride. Again, this is like I mentioned before. It's just a a worst-case scenario. So after Bramlett got out, the boy and the girl, who just so happened to be Johnny and Teresa Wood, returned to the party where they encountered the girl's father, and he told the girl he was on the way home... And she'd better beat him there. Now, he left with the girl close behind. But by the time she got back to the intersection, Bramlett was gone. And I said this before. What the hell was this guy doing that... I mean, Wood is going to this party, intimidating his daughter, telling, him, telling people that he should not be hanging out with this girl, Beth Bramlett. And then all of a sudden, Beth Bramlett goes missing. It's just like, okay... So the investigation did not show Wood was, you know, the perpetrator at the time. But if you look at what came out in in 2018, it was like he was... They say he was a suspect, but if they would have just gotten him into a room, I'm pretty sure they could have interrogated him and figured out that he was the killer. I mean, this guy... It is unbelievable. I mean, this he seriously was a monster by all accounts. And in the same KWTX article, like I mentioned before, about how he used to like to tie up his wife and beat her, he would also be so kind to take a picture to capture that memory. He would apparently show these off to people. Again, what the hell is wrong with these people? He is bragging about being a wife beater. Someone should have stepped in. I don't give a shit if it's scary or not, but this dude was clearly a menace to society. And if 60 people saw this dude with blood all over him, those 60 people are also to blame for making this poor family wait decades before they found out who killed their daughter. It's insane. So, you know, again, he picked up Beth, And it was about 18 miles northeast of the lake when Wood stopped the car. He beat Beth severely and then shot her with his pistol. And that's when he dumped her body on the railroad tracks in the middle of Axtell. Now, a witness interviewed during the recent investigation told detectives he'd seen Wood get out of his car at about 3.30 a.m. the morning of the killing and his clothes were stained with blood. I'm, again, dude, guy... Witness, come forward. I mean, you just had three murders in Lake Waco. You just had a girl disappear. You can't put two and two together. I mean, I do not believe that this guy could be that intimidating. I do not believe it. Now, of course, Detective Fuller said, we looked everywhere for that car. According to Texas Ranger Jake Burson, we went through years of vehicle records, and we think we found where it was sold to wood, but we never were able to track it down. Now, again, Bramlett's mother had told investigators she last saw her daughter at about 1.30 a.m. on Sunday, August 8, 1982. Now, after she learned dep- deputies had found a body on August eighth, she reported Beth missing the next day. I don't know, that kind of is weird. I would have thought you would report her missing, The day she didn't come home. But, again, 1982, different way of life, different world all around. The McLennan County Sheriff's Office said better technology and testimony from witnesses allowed them to solve a cold case from three decades ago. Now, Wood was also accused of sexually abusing family members. When asked if there would be enough evidence to convict him, detectives said they checked with a former prosecutor, and he told them they had enough for him to be indicted and convicted of the crime. But Bramlett's murder isn't the only murder tied to the same suspect, and that's according to Simons. Quote, at the time, he was living with his grandmother, Simons said, and she was starting to get suspicious. A short time later, the suspect's grandmother was found beaten to death in her Bellmead home. That murder remains unsolved to this day. Simon said when she threatened to throw him out, he killed her so he would have a place to live. Okay, so Talmadge Wood was a sociopath and was also probably a serial killer. It's such a shame that we don't actually get to see him face justice since he had died four years before being identified. Now, during this research, I found it interesting that Truman Simons said he was convinced he knew who the killer was, but just needed to run the DNA. Well, the media covering the 35 year anniversary, Simons was able to actually get his man this time. And I said Simons was an interesting and potentially troubling detective because he put Munir Deeb in prison for a crime he didn't commit and made some unsavory promises and fabrications to get convictions. I don't think those things can be overlooked, but he said he knew who the killer was and he was right. So kudos to him. In regards to the Lake Waco murders, there's a lot of questionable activity and possibly false confessions. David Spence was ultimately put to death for the Lake Waco murders and his two supposed co-conspirators have also died in prison. It is scary to think about falsely confessing because we all say we would never do it. But we also don't have the psychological makeup to combat an interrogation. According to the Innocence Project, 25% of wrongful convictions are overturned with DNA evidence. They involve a false confession, and many of those false confessions actually contained details that matched the crime details that were not made to the public. Now, if approximately 27% of the total number of exoneration cases involved a false confession, and if 10% of those of the 2 million men and women imprisoned in the United States are innocent, as estimated by the Justice Department, then we can gather as many as 50,000 of their convictions involved false confessions. Now, again, that is according to the Innocence Project. So, breakfast sandwich king Jimmy Dean Rowe was not one of these types of individuals. Roe was more of an attention seeker and had mental health issues. I have spoken with multiple law enforcement officials about this phenomenon, and they tell me with any confession, you have to start by taking things with a grain of salt. In the Amy Maholovic case there were several confessions, and one that made the news. In the case in that case, a man entered a church and proclaimed I am the killer of Amy Maholovic. As you know, her case remains unsolved because this guy was having a mental health episode. And I am a big proponent of getting proper mental health. So, hopefully he got his health taken care of. If a person comes forward to confess, the investigators have to listen carefully just to make sure that the person isn't reciting news reports. Clearly, Most investigators want this person to be the killer, but they also can't waste resources on people who just walk in off the street with a story, just like Jimmy Dean. If they can provide information the media doesn't know, then interest will be piqued. However, more often than not, these aren't the killers, which makes it tough for investigators to take these people seriously. It's a very Boy Who Called Wolf scenario but investigators know they have to interview these people just to make sure nothing slips through the cracks. But it can't make solving cases, especially cold cases, any easier when people just confess to be part of the story. You could say the same psychology behind the guy who confesses for attention is also behind the motivation for a killer to take part in search parties or somehow place themselves in the investigation. You saw that in the with steve pankey the character a few episode episodes back here you had a guy who felt so strongly he could help the investigation but it turns out he was the actual killer now thanks to dna in that case he will face trial this month so you have all sorts of crazies and wacky characters po- popping up in murder investigations talmadge wayne wood is one of those characters a real-life monster who terrorized everyone who knew him I saw one report where he shot himself in the head with the same gun he used to kill Miss Bramlett, but was uninjured. It is crazy to think that Beth would still be alive if he wouldn't have missed. On that note, we are going to wrap up this week's episode of Who Killed. But I did want to say it was the eight-man cold case unit who was able to put Beth's case to rest. And luckily, Sheriff Parnell McNamara was able to bring some closure. For the Bramlett family. And for Truman Simons, I know that he did not do the best policing in the industry. But he also was a vigilant and maybe overstepped the boundaries in a lot of situations. But again, you got to kind of have some of those people on your team because not everybody likes to get their hands dirty. And this is not to say that Simons is a dirty cop. I just think that he maybe made some promises and some possibly you know, illegal decisions along the way while investigating all of these crimes. I mean, again, this is the guy who put a business owner, a local business owner, in jail for a nearly a decade. And it's really crazy to think that this character, uh, Munir Deeb, was able to not only learn law while in jail, he was able to get himself acquitted and have the case overturned. It's a truly remarkable story. One that probably, like I say in a lot of these situations, could deserve its own movie. I mean, it's really interesting to think about how someone in jail is able to learn all they need to know about appeals and then eventually file one and whoa they appeal the appellate court actually listened and look, I'm free now. It's not something that happens every day of course, but it is pretty interesting. So again, two things to keep in mind this week are I am now a part of the evergreen podcast team and it is. Awesome to be a part of it. And stay tuned and tune in for Snapped Behind Bars, the Taylor Marks story on Saturday, October 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Again, I will be the main talking head on that particular episode. With that being said, you can find new episodes of Who Killed every Friday wherever you get your favorite podcasts and on evergreenpodcasts.com. As always, if you enjoy this podcast and my other shows, you can help support via PayPal with my username at williamhuffman3, or you can also contribute with the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. Every contribution, big or small, helps keep these slow burn and evergreen podcasts running. You can help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your favorite shows. Again, those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover, such as all the unsolved cases I've covered in the spotlight. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. You guys, thanks so much for tuning in this week. I really do appreciate it. And until next time, as always, be healthy and stay safe.
0: So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed